Hello, we're under starter's orders, ready to listen to someone who faces challenge after challenge and somehow finds a way through. I'm David Jays and this is Why Dance Matters, the Royal Academy of Dance podcast. Today, I'm talking to a multi-medal winning Paralympic athlete. Libby Clegg has won no less than five Paralympic medals, at least one in each of the past four games, in Beijing, London, Rio and Tokyo, where she capped an amazing career with a silver medal for Team GB in the 100 metres relay, and then announced she was retiring from the track. There is a dance connection. Libby loved dance and ballet when she was little, and even though athletics took over, last year she took part in the TV competition Dancing on Ice and reached the final. Of course she did. Watching Libby on the track or on the ice, she makes it all look easy. But even without a visual impairment, none of this stuff is straightforward. Libby is impressively candid about struggles with her mental health, even at what should have been her greatest moment of triumph, winning two gold medals at the Rio Games. Please be aware that our conversation will discuss mental health and some of the darker moments of Libby's journey. I also want to ask her about ice dancing, accessibility and her guide dog, Hattie. She's written a book about their life together. Ready? On your marks, go. Livy Clegg, thank you so much for joining us on Why Dance Matters. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about dance, we're going to talk about sport, we're going to talk about all sorts of things. But what came first for you? Was it ballet? Was it sport? Because you danced when you were quite young, didn't you? Yeah, so I actually started dancing when I was two. So my mum took me along to ballet class and I did tap ballet modern for quite a long time. Actually, I did it for about 10 years and I absolutely loved it. Wow. And were you also always a competitive little person? Do you know, it's funny you should ask that because I never really thought I was. Because in, in dance, I just did it for fun. And I liked doing the shows and like putting costumes on for family and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So I never really experienced competition until probably primary school. And I was quite shy. So I was never really that confident. But I just loved sports day and I loved the fact that you could win or lose. <laughs> 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 that was it really to me. I ended up really enjoying that either winning or losing element of competition. That's how I ended up getting more involved in athletics because it was like a, you know, a black and white winner sort of thing. It was there was no sort of grey area really. So but how do you deal with with it when when you're <laughs> you're not on the winning side of that very harsh equation is that something that you're quite calm about or does that eat at you for days I think when you're younger you're obviously very disappointed about losing but even when I win I'm very critical of myself so even when I have a really good race I'm still analyzing what I can do better what went so well what didn't go so well for me, I end up just actually analysing each race as if I kind of have lost in a way because, you know, you're always wanting to improve and always get better because you know, even when you're winning, there's people right behind you chasing you. So um, it seems like a bit of a vicious circle, really, because you're, you're constantly trying to improve yourself and move forward, really, and progress. Yeah, that's interesting because I've had very similar 
conversations with dancers who, even when it seems from the audience they've given an insanely beautiful performance, will say, yeah, but the turns weren't quite as crisp and I missed that. And it's sometimes quite hard to get them to say anything nice about their performance. But I guess it's a similar mentality. However good, you always know there's another bit of fine tuning you could have done. I think it is a part of being, you know, an athlete and having that mentality is always looking to do better. And for me, dancers are athletes. Even though it's it's beautiful and artistic, you know, you still have to have that mentality. But you're right, it's that next level. You know yourself that things were like 99% there and you just need that extra percent. So it can be great on one hand because it means that you're always looking to improve. But on the other hand, you don't stop to appreciate those good moments because you're always thinking, oh, well, actually that that one didn't go quite so well or my start wasn't as quick and <laughs> you don't just go, actually, that was really good. <laughs> <laughs> I was really struck this summer when the tennis player, Naomi Osaka, said she was going to be stepping back from tennis for a bit because she said something like when she won, she just felt relief. And when she lost, she felt absolutely terrible. And I guess that's part of the sort of the the mental game that you're talking about and that sort of battle with yourself I mean does any of that sound familiar to you in my sport I've always been prepared to fail and you know you're always ready for those disappointments and for things not to go that well and we don't ever really prepare athletes for success and after Rio in 2016 I became double Paralympic champion I was a world record holder it was it should have been the happiest time of my life I, I can really resonate with what she's saying, how she was feeling, because I felt relieved that I'd actually done it. But at the same time, I didn't enjoy it. It felt good for like five minutes, and then it just was like, oh, okay. I then felt very unfulfilled. I started asking myself all these questions about who I was and who I was outside of the track, and all these weird, horrible feelings started to come to me. And I always felt like I was a very mentally strong person and a very resilient athlete. And then all of a sudden, I ended up spiraling to having mental health issues and it it completely took me by surprise I was trying to talk to people around me about it they think you this is something that you've dreamt of your whole life you've achieved it they're like you should be happy other people will never get a, a Paralympic gold medal and you know you should be grateful that you've got one and then you just think oh my gosh like I don't know how to explain the feeling of numbness that has now <laughs> taken over me and it's really hard to explain to people but you're right, it's like when you don't succeed, you feel awful. And then when you do succeed, there is that sense of relief. So then for me, it was an unknown feeling of, of numbness and not knowing who I was. And there are such a very few people who will have been in your situation, who will have been absolutely at the top of an incredibly difficult sport. Where, where, who do you talk to when you're trying to work through that stuff? Because there's so few people will really know what that experience is like. I mean, it was really difficult because I couldn't talk to my friends and family about it. I couldn't talk to my partner about it. My athletics friends, some of them were probably going through similar feelings to me. And, you know, you start to switch off when you, you know, from everybody in the outside world, really. You start to shut your friends out and that kind of thing. And then some of my other friends who hadn't maybe achieved what they wanted to achieve were looking at me thinking, why is she upset about the fact that she's got two Paralympic gold medals? I had nowhere to turn and I felt very isolated. I had a mental breakdown on the track. 
one day with our sports psychologist and she said, I think you need to go and talk to the doctor. At that point, I'm sort of, I need a psychiatrist and potentially have to go on medication at this point. I ended up seeing a sports psychiatrist. He he was sort of dabbling in sport at the time. He still had a lot of, or I'd say normal clients <laughs> as well. <laughs> and he was uh, breaking into sport and he really helped me. His name's Alan Johnson and he was just absolutely fantastic at helping me work through my mental space really and you know it ended up not being nothing about my achievements and everything about me trying to work out who I was but it took me about 18 months to sort of become a shadow of myself again really I'd I'd completely lost myself so yeah it took it took quite a long time even now like I'm not the same person I was before I had mental health issues it's left like a taint on me whereas I'm not quite as confident as probably I was when I was 26. I guess there's so much when you're on the sort of treadmill of training and you've got those goals and you're just going for them. You don't have time to think about lots of the other stuff that might be going on in your head. It is, and it is an issue with sport, especially like Olympic and Paralympic sports, is that you literally work on a four-year cycle and everything in your life revolves around those four years. So you you're always like you finish a Paralympic Games and you're like yep I've got World Championships next year or then I've got Europeans or potentially Commonwealths then I'm back on a Worlds again the year after then I've got a Paralympic Games again and you literally have your four years planned out in front of you of what you're going to do so you never have time to just stop and appreciate what you've actually achieved and how far you've come and sometimes the smaller achievements are actually the biggest ones but you don't realise that because you've always focused on meddling or, you know, the next competition. It then puts you in this like sort of cycle of just constantly just trying to move forward and never just going, actually, I've done really well and I need to just take some time to go, this is really good. <laughs> and I'm happy with my performance and really appreciate what you've achieved. And I think it's only when, when you get older and you look back on these things that you probably go, oh, wow, actually, that was really incredible. It's interesting because dance, I think, is learning from sport in this. A lot of leading ballet companies are now working with performance psychologists, having people on their books who can help with exactly these kind of problems and questions that dancers might have. And in a way, kind of asking for that help is probably it's probably the bravest thing you've ever done, really. Definitely. Asking for help was so difficult and I've just got to the point, I didn't want to harm myself. I just would have been quite happy if I'd just not woken up. So I'd never, never really got to the point where I wanted to hurt myself. But I just thought, you know, I don't want to get out of bed anymore. If I just went to sleep and didn't wake up again, I'd be quite happy with that. And it was just that feeling of numbness. And, and it was complete despair, actually. I just, I didn't know. It just felt like there was no tangibleness in my life anymore. It was really, really horrible feeling. But I mean... I obviously danced when I was when I was two till I was about twelve. And when I did dancing on ice, it was so good for me to go back to sort of I mean, I wasn't a very good dancer on dancing ice, but uh, going back to that appreciation and like for me, ice skating is ballet on ice in an ice <laughs> and uh, I was terrible. I've got a very sort of, I don't know, logical mindset when it comes to training. So I've got that element of skating, but I do not have the artistic <laughs> performance element of it. But even doing that, it was just a newfound appreciation for 
dance and for for skating it's just absolutely incredible because there's then a whole other element you've got that whole sort of logical structure of training and mentally being prepared but then you've got this wonderful artistic side which has to be pulled in and the performance side and for me it was just absolutely just awe-inspiring really because you have to have a really nice blend of both and I was just like this is absolutely phenomenal and it gave me a new appreciation not only for dance but for ice skating as well those Icelanders are incredible and it's something that I'd never really been massively since I've been doing athletics I'd never really looked back on dance I love going to the theatre and things like that but I'd never really gone back to it and I was just like oh wow like this incorporates a whole other level that just you know running down the track <laughs> doesn't have so yeah no I think it's so important that all these different people play a part in a dancer's or athlete's performance really because there's so many other aspects to it it's not just about the physical training it is that mental wellness and that it's not only just seeing a psychologist it's also the lifestyle and making sure that you're doing things that keep you happy that obviously don't massively impact your training or your performance or that kind of thing so there's so many other players are involved in in that one performance and I find it really fascinating that you know even though a lot of these people do all these jobs and are there to help you perform they're very much in the background and I think sometimes people forget about all the other work that goes on to get that one person to where they need to be. And I was really interested in some of the different sorts of partnerships that you've had that are are really important in your work and in your life. And one of them, to stick with Dancing on Ice for a minute, when you were uh, dancing with Mark Hanretti, I think he was more nervous than you at the start. He's the professional (laughs) ice dancer, but you were, I think you had to sort of reassure him that this would be okay. Basically... I knew whoever got me was going to be absolutely bricking it. (laughs) Just because you think they'd have to be, they might feel they had to be overprotective or just really worried that you might hurt yourself in some way. I think so. And also like, it's very challenging. Like blind people not necessarily have a very good perception of their bodies. They don't have the same spatial awareness. Watching me perform, I have no, I'm no good at facial expressions at all. It's a whole different element that has and a different challenge has to be brought in. And me and Mark had such an interesting conversation straight off the get-go. I just said to him, because I knew he was a bit nervous about working with me, and he was probably thinking, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I've got Libby and I've got this blind person and I don't know what to do. I've never worked with a blind person before. I just said to him, look, I am an athlete. I have very good concept of my body. I am very coachable. Like once stuff clicks you know it'll be absolutely fine and I just tried to reassure him that I was going to do my best I wanted to make sure that you know I didn't make him look silly or myself look silly and we just absolutely clicked to be honest I think he realized after the first session that I wasn't going to let anything get in my way and he actually coaches in his like normal work life separate from dancing nights as well and he has a really, had a really good strategy to show me different positions. And we just reiterated those positions every single session that we did. I was like, don't let me get away with poor technique. <laughs> technique. Um, and that was just phenomenal. Like I completely trusted 
trusted Mark and we we were doing things together that he'd not done with any of his previous dance partners on the show so I was like yes <laughs> but no we had a great we had a great time and he's become a really really good friend and someone that I truly trust I only had one one sort of fall and that was backstage um just before I was about to go on for one of our performances I just slipped once yeah all, my, all the other times I've managed to uh sort of save myself <laughs> to have got through the whole series upright I mean even if you'd done nothing else that's actually quite an achievement isn't it definitely yeah no I didn't, I didn't think I did too badly on that front <laughs> <laughs> and before that of course you've had a very long partnership with Chris Clark your running guide I've heard dance, uh, you know, leading ballet dancers say that for a perfect dance partnership, it doesn't actually need to be your, your best friend. Sometimes it can be perfect on stage, even if you don't particularly get on. So what for you is the thing that makes it a perfect running partnership? So I totally get where some of the dancers have said that from, because I've had partnerships before with other guide runners where you can be really good friends, but you don't need to get on all the time as well. And you do need your own space. Over the years, I've learned to know when I need my own space and also when my guide runner needs space. Because when we go to competitions, for example, we're stuck with one another for a significant period of time. Rio, for example, it was a month and Tokyo was pretty similar. It is important that you have a good enough relationship that you can communicate when you need space and when you don't. On the physical side of things, Chris is actually, for me, it's about keeping in sync and it's more about him having the ability to get in, in rhythm and in time with myself rather than me gelling with him. Um, and it's a bit, for me, I kind of try and make it work both ways so I adapt slightly as well just because it makes the partnership easier. Um, that isn't always the case, but it takes a lot of trust. So having that, belief that they're not gonna he's not gonna put me in any harm's way because I am blindfolded and running flat out especially on the bend can be terrifying so making sure that he has my shrubs is really important but a lot of people said Chris was going to be a terrible guide runner because he's quite irresponsible in his normal day-to-day very distracted and they're like oh no like Chris is do you think Chris is going to be a good guide? And I was like, yeah, he's going to be amazing. Like, don't, don't worry about it. And it's really interesting because for himself, he sometimes didn't necessarily train in certain ways he should have done or, you know, he'd miss certain things. He was a world-class athlete within his own right. But for me, it was because he was helping me and so supporting me, the responsibility was was different. He completely thrived in that because he felt like he was, like, looking after me and making sure that, it wasn't really about him. It was about him getting the most out of my performance. So we've had a really good relationship and a really good friendship. Don't get me wrong, I've wanted to kill him at times. <laughs> but he he's a, he's a really kind-hearted person and he's got no ego whatsoever, which is very helpful. And I really trust him, but it is, it's that communication, you know, being able to tell one another when you're like not feeling it or you're having a bad day or... You know, something's happened at home. You don't necessarily need to be best friends, but you need to be able to have that communication. It's, it's really important. And how do you communicate during a race when, the, you know, especially in the Paralympic final, another huge event where the crowd must be, must be so loud. I, how can you hear each other? Or is it by that point, are you just kind of <laughs> tuned into each other's thoughts in some way? 
it's actually really he doesn't really need to say anything to me we could go through a whole race and he could just not say anything if he didn't want to and I am just attuned into what he is saying it's really bizarre it's like every other sound disappears and I can just tune into him but it's actually mostly done on feel I can feel him and it's when everything's in sync there's like a fluidity to it there's like a a freeness to it it feels so good that there's like this sweet spot that like it feels effortless and lightweight <laughs> and uh, I can imagine it actually being like that uh, when you're dancing with somebody where there's a point where it just you just know exactly what that other person's going to do and it's kind of like that really there's just like this effortlessness and any sort of slight movement that he makes so if he changes his body position ever so slightly, I can tell. And that actually means we're at a different point in the race. Some of it is obviously just a bit of instinct to know where I'm at on the track. But another bit, part of that is just having that feel and that connection. That must be the most amazing feeling, when, it, as you say, when you hit that sweet spot. Definitely. It can, it can be a bit scary sometimes because it's so effortless that you kind of lose contact for a few moments. And it's been strange. It's going so well that, yeah, you just sort of have this weird connection, but without feeling connected. (laughs) So, human partnerships, I mean, fine, obviously, but compared to a dog... (laughs) <laughs> do, do humans even really get on the scale so you've just written about your really important partnership with your guide dog Hattie how does that bond happen presumably it's not every dog you would be able to to feel that with you've got to find the dog who's going to be right for you for me I was hoping this instantaneous connection with Hattie and I'm not gonna lie she was that fussed about me She's a bit of a traitor. If you have food, she's your best friend. She's not quite happily dropped me for somebody else that's got a little bit of food. <laughs> so it took me quite a while to sort of decide to get a guide dog. And it was predominantly, I was getting very bored of explaining to everybody. I couldn't see very well. And could they help me? And I was just like, oh gosh, it's the same old chat every day. And after I'd have to do it multiple times a day and I'm getting bored. I hated using a cane. I felt really disabled using a cane which is quite ironic because a guide dog is more obviously (laughs) a symbol for being blind. Um, But she gives me confidence that I just, just to go somewhere and not be judged by anybody because all people want to do is stroke her. I was going to say, it's probably a really, apart from everything else, a really brilliant distraction for making sure that you don't have to be the focus of attention all the time. Of course. Yeah, exactly. That's that's it. So obviously, physically, she gets me from A to B and she's very helpful. It's the confidence that she gives me. I can just go somewhere. I don't have to be like, excuse me, I'm registered blind. Can you help me? They're like, oh, can I stroke your dog? What's the name? <laughs> You know, how how old is she? How long have you had her? Have you had her from a puppy? So, you know, it's all these questions that about the talk rather than about myself. And it's so nice because it just gets rid of that awkwardness. Not not really for me, because I'm so used to explaining myself to everybody, but for that other person, you know, don't have to make them feel uncomfortable because disability can be quite awkward having those conversations. Having Hattie there, it just, I think it gives them it just makes them feel a bit more relaxed and a bit more comfortable and they feel like they can ask you more questions. I'm all about asking questions, you know. 
you're not sure about anything, ask. I don't, like, there's literally nothing that I could be asked that I would be offended by. Because at the end of the day, I just want to help people get a better understanding. So yeah, having Hattie there is just, you know, it's perfect really. But it, it took a few weeks for Hattie to get used to being in a different house and, you know, get used to working with me, someone different. But yeah, no, she she's she's been such an amazing dog and she's been there for me through lots of ups and downs so um, yeah and I, I guess it must be quite quite tiring in a way I mean you say you're you're really excited to answer people's questions and pleased to answer them but even so the idea that every time you step outside your front door you're kind of on duty as spokesperson for disability there must be days where that's more of a burden than others there can be days where it's a bit like i just want to get on with my shopping now Um, but at the same time i kind of think sometimes say if i'm you know nipping to the shops and i'm wandering around and someone tries to instigate conversation with me about the talk sometimes I think about like someone that's an old person and quite often it's an old person that's on their own and I just think you know what they're just looking to talk to somebody and I've got Hattie and most people that have dogs are friendly and I just think sometimes even though I am in a rush I just think you know what what's a minute out of my day to make a little bit of time for somebody else can't just be selfish all the time um you know it's not necessarily about you know what you get from other people is it sometimes what you can sort of give back to them as well so sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating but I'm just like you know what there's a reason why someone's talking to me so I just try and make that effort Libby Clegg you're such a nice person sometimes in the background of a moment <laughs> I know you've just started working with Sea Sport Differently, a campaign to encourage blind and partially sighted people to become a bit more physically active. I was wondering how accessible and inclusive is sport? Does there sort of is there a kind of Paralympic boost every four years that sort of trickles through? I mean, after the Paralympic Games, there is obviously a lot more interest in para sport but for me it's it's not really about making equipment accessible or making a gym accessible it's about customer service is the main thing and then also educating our coaches teaching them how to think outside the box and adapt things instead of just going actually this person's disabled it's going to be really hard work I can't be bothered and that happens more than often it can be that person that shuts shuts that opportunity down rather than a physical object you know like a, yeah. a talking treadmill or anything for me it should be integrated in all coaching programs that you can learn how to adapt things for people because I mean even when you go to a gym you know if you go to a gym you're working with somebody that's really un- unfit you can adapt exercises to help them still participate on a certain level and it's no different for a disabled person you know it d- doesn't matter what your ability is there is ways around things and for me it's just about people educating themselves a little bit better and you know again front desk staff you know if they're a little bit more open-minded or sometimes can be a bit more welcoming that would make a huge difference because like you say you know if you go to a cafe or a restaurant and you have bad customer service you're never going to go back again for a blind person or a disabled person that becomes even more ingrained if you have a negative experience where you will never go back and 
it could have taken that person a lot to get there in the first place. And then to have that knockback, it just sends them, you know, puts them further and further back from where they want to be. You just need one bad encounter, don't you, to undo the, the, the effort you might have had to make to get the confidence to go to try something. Definitely. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's something as simple as good customer service that could make a huge difference. But, yeah, I think for me as well, just the coaches, you know, there's ways around things. You can adapt things different ways for different people. It's just about being a bit imaginative and having a bit of creativity sometimes. You had to make the decision this summer that you were going to retire from competitive elite sport. It's a hard one, I know, for for dancers and performers. It must be a hard one for an athlete to think, "Okay, I'm going to bring down the curtain at this point. Did you you always know that Tokyo would, would mark that point? I did. I knew that Tokyo was going to be my last Paralympic Games. I just... I made the decision actually 18 months ago, but obviously COVID happened. I was like, oh no, I think it's gone for another year. And I'm gutted because I was in very good shape after dance and I, so I was very, very lean. I lost a lot of motivation when the Paralympics were cancelled and postponed for another year. But, you know, for me, like my Achilles is not in good condition at all. I I just knew it was time and I'm really happy that that is going to be near the last time I'm on a track and to win a relay medal. This is also like over the past five years, you know, having mental health issues, I've realised that there's more to life than just sports. And for me, Tokyo is about giving back to my teammates as well, as much as obviously competing. And to win a relay medal and be a part of that team was so special. It's something that you don't really get to experience athletes very often because it's not a team sport, but I got to be there for two athletes that were in that team. It was their first Paralympic medal and Johnny Peacock, obviously he's just an outstanding athlete. So it was incredible to be on a team with those guys. And yeah, it was just really special, but I, I just knew I was ready and I'd like to say it was a hard decision in the end, but it, it wasn't really. I kind of just felt like I'm just ready to pass the baton on to everyone else. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be the end of me potentially competing because I did some cycling trials a couple of weeks ago and I might get on a bike and go into the bathroom for a little bit. <laughs> I was going to ask how you follow that, you know, because when you've had that adrenaline and those kind of highs and lows and that, all of that experience, it might, it, I, I, again, I know it's difficult for um, performers, for dancers to work, walk away from that. Where do you look in your life for that kind of <laughs> up and down roller coaster experience? And obviously what you do is just find a complete new sport and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting because before I went for these trials, I was just, I'm very open-minded about things anyway at the moment. I'm just like, oh, you know, I'll take every opportunity that comes along, give anything a go. And, you know, I really enjoyed it and I enjoy competing. But for me, like I've got a little boy, he's super important to me like it's obviously my main priority every day is like a roller coaster with <laughs> imagine especially it's two and a half now as well so you can, he's you know can be a right monster some days but yeah it's for me I want to be able to even though I'm not necessarily in athletics anymore I just want to be able to pass my knowledge and experience on to the next generation 
of athletes coming through, whether they're you know, grassroots development, whether just happy to sort of share my experiences. So hopefully other athletes can learn from my mistakes. <laughs> so yeah, and you know, there's obviously there's all sorts of things around that, like decision making and being injured and having to rehab and, and all those sorts of things. So I, I want to stay involved in sort of performance sport and just be able to help athletes through through different things, whether it is being successful winning Paralympic medals or you know, having to leave a coach, which is horrendous, <laughs> um, or being injured. Yeah, they, those things are things that, you know, we don't necessarily focus on a lot of time. Libby, I feel we've covered a huge amount of ground in a really quite a short time. So I will <laughs> stop. But there is one last question, which is, I know it's not been a constant through your life, but why does dance matter to you? Dance matters to me because I think it's a expression of yourself. It gives you a sense of freedom and being. Yeah. And I mean, I'm terrible at dancing, but I do like to have a little dance in the kitchen. I'm not going <laughs> to. Have you been back on the ice? I haven't. I'm actually going back on the ice on Sunday. So I'm quite looking forward to that. And Livy, it's been an absolute treat to speak to you thank you so much thank you very much as i said before libby makes everything seem easy including talking about difficult things that some of us struggle with and remaining apparently really lovely while doing it that's truly medal winning stuff Our show notes will point you in the right direction for Libby's book, My Life with Hattie, and the Sea Sport Differently campaign, and also tell you more about the RAD and its work. If you enjoyed the conversation, we'd love you to subscribe and like the podcast. You can review us too. Our guest today was Libby Clegg. Why Dance Matters is made with the RAD team of Celia Moran, Melanie Murphy and Charlie Strachan. Our artwork is by Bex Glendinning and our producer, Sarah Miles, is someone else who makes everything seem easy. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon.